0: Beware of narrative capture, whether you're a reporter or a citizen or a politician or a scientist, sometimes they get captured by narratives too. It makes you oblivious to the real dimensions of the problem or to some changing data that might say, you know what, your old narrative is broken.
1: Hi, Vicki Robin here, host of What Could Possibly Go Right, a project of the Post Carbon Institute in which we interview cultural scouts, people who see far and serve the common good. To help us all see more clearly and act more courageously in times of great change. And my guest today is Andy Refkin. He's an American science and environmental journalist, author, and educator. He's written on a wide range of sub- subjects, including destruction of the Amazon rainforest, the 2004 Asian tsunami, sustainable development, climate change, and then changing environment around the North Pole, he is the founding director of the Initiative on Communication and Sustainability at the Earth Institute of Columbia University. I'm gonna leave that uh, introduction short so that we can get onto the conversation because it was far ranging and a bit long. So um, you will see more about Andy in the show notes. And here he is, Andy Revkin. Hey, Andy Revkin. It is a great honor and pleasure to have you with me as my guest. I am a long admirer of your work of telling stories we need to hear about our interlaced global crises bundled currently under climate change, but they've been bundled under many headings for the entire, your entire career. Um, and one of the things I love is you're not just an investigative journalist, you are a systems thinker, and you're an engaged citizen trying to both understand and impact the complex webs of cause and effect that humanity and the earth are not caught in. Um, and I see, I call my guests cultural scouts and I see journalists as a particular breed of cultural scout, uh, people who really, whose job it is to scan the horizon for, for the emerging stories and to make sense of them, to translate them into you know, information, news we can use. Um, and you are truly a guiding light in this regard and a So um, (laughs) I've watched your show where you circle so many topics relevant to global warming, uh, from geoengineering to the pandemic, to disinformation, to the weather, to um, racial justice. And so now I want you to pull it all together for us through your own lens. So where do you see the light shining most brightly on the horizon? And What are the most promising trends, the, interventions, where can we put our own fingers on the scale as the world still turns? And fundamentally, Andy Revkin, what could possibly go right?
0: Yeah, really? These days, that's a pretty good question because it feels so often that things have gone terribly wrong. I guess I, just to start with, I tend to have a daily rhythm where I wake up focus on things that are going right. You know, I, I kind of, I have a, a very positive sense of what can be happening and what, to, what what I can look at. And then by the end of the day, I can get pretty dispirited and kind of word out. Anyone who's been um, online, particularly in recent uh, months can have that feeling of despair. But I always wake up the next morning with the sense of, okay, so when you look at my shows, for example, that I've done through the, through the Earth Institute, um, they don't, they're they not clean and neat. They don't start, they start with sometimes a simple question like, how do we navigate the information around, environment around the pandemic better? But they usually end up with more questions than answers. But I don't, that doesn't bother, bother me. I know that these are, as you say, they're, they're systemic problems and solutions are not just like turning a knob or uh, turning off the volume or uh, on climate change, for example, these days, there are a lot of people who just want to turn up the volume and think that that'll solve the climate problem. Uh, you know, a, a, a harsher headline, use the word climate emergency instead of climate crisis, instead of climate change. And I'm not like, I, I, I don't have a lot of faith that that's the, that's the answer. The answer is on better awareness of conditions, um, a nonpartisan way to look at risk, whether it's climate risk or pandemic risk, what are the drivers of risk? Once you identify the drivers of risk, I mean, what's putting people in harm's way or the, the biosphere, if more, more generally, if that's the question. And then who, who is situated in a way that can um, lower the risk or, or raise the opportunity? And when you when you use a sort of a risk framing, a lot of the um, it doesn't become as much about rhetoric or even writing, you know, which is what I do most of the time. You know, I've been writing articles for decades, thousands of articles on these issues, five books, and it becomes more about what's the ecosystem, who needs to talk to whom to make a difference on this issue, and that leads to really to. My big aha after the first thirty years of journalism, or really, I guess twenty-five years, toward um, looking at models for better conversations as a, as a as important as telling a better story. The narrative, in fact, narratives can sometimes get in the way of solutions. I I have been tweeting for those on Twitter, the hashtag narrative capture, saying beware of narrative capture. And that's basically where you're captured by a narrative, whether you're a reporter or a citizen or a politician or a scientist, sometimes they get captured by narratives too. And you it makes you oblivious to the real dimensions of the problem or to some changing data that might say, you know what, your old narrative is broken. Um, I experienced this many times as a journalist. Um, and it, the pattern really only really became the, the importance of breaking the pattern only became more important to me um, in recent years as I as these examples piled up of a narrative where you thought it was something and and that it became, it's actually something else. And that that's really an important part of the path forward, especially in complicated times like these.
1: is so interesting about narrative capture because really a lot of the activity now whether it's politics or well-meaning people like you or me or you know many others is um is the effort to use language to frame reality in such a way so that people can see what you see right. and act in a and go in the direction you want them to go which is you know i mean it's manipulation, but it's really language, you know, watch out, there's an elephant, you know, (laughs) know. (laughs) you know, it's, it's the function of um, stories to guide us. And so, in a way, I hear you saying we're sitting inside of both traditional stories and, and um, what do you call it fabricated stories that are misleading us, even the well intentioned ones.
0: Right. Well, I'll give you a couple of examples. With climate, you know, if you're if you are embrace the climate crisis, meaning climate change from CO two coming out of smokestacks, changing the climate and causing all kinds of mayhem, which I've been writing about since 1988. um, You can miss that even now. In most instances around the world, when people are have homes that are flooded or um, windstorms wreak awful damage or, well, let's focus on those examples. The reason for the surge in losses recently, oh, wildfires too, California. Most of the thing that gets the headline is, is the losses, how many houses burned. And a bit, that, uh, the biggest driver of that losses is not climate change. It's human change, it's where we build. It's the California, it turns out California was built in the 20th century in a time that was weirdly wet. When you look at the timescale of centuries, the 20th century was really anomalously green in California. So we built a huge amount of vulnerability to, an, to a monster that's living in the climate system, extreme Western drought. And that, if you think it's all about CO2 and you start yammering, yelling at, at Exxon, which we need to do to reduce the emissions for long-term impact, that takes the onus off of looking at ourselves and wow, we built an entire state worth of vulnerability in areas that are going, that are inevitably gonna burn uh, in a century that was anomalously wet. And that takes me again. So that that says there's lots to do to, reduce risk right now, even as we fight the big fight on climate change. So that's uh, narrative captures. Uh, and this is quite frequent in newsrooms too. It's, uh, it has to be, it's climate change, climate change, climate crisis. If your definition of the climate crisis is that there's also, also a vulnerability crisis, I'm fine with that. So it's kind of, um. narrative can get in the way of a real look at the real problems and solutions sometimes.
1: I find it. It's really interesting because, you know, it's like New Orleans, you know, like it's built in a, it's built in this alluvial plane, you know, and um, in Katrina, you know, it's like New Orleans has an identity and it has a, um, not only an identity, but it has a, um, a history and a future. It has a process. It's a thing. And so, you know you look at where it's built and you say that's a big risk <laughs> but but you you look at New Orleans you know and it's a process it's a history and a future and an identity and music and experiences and it's like human experiences woven into that um, high risk choice or you know the houses in California or people who who, who like wanted a view and so they built on an alluvial plane you know I mean all of this right. Is it's part of the myopia, human myopia, that we can override natural systems, and and but once we've done that and built a life around the override, that that creates a tremendous resistance, tremendous resistance to identify what the risk is. I it's, I mean, I think yeah. you part of that narrative capture is. That we don't want to see the truth because it might mean that our house is worthless.
0: Exactly. No, and this happens <laughs> all the time. You know,
1: so all of this is like the intersection. I think there's a piece of what you're saying is not just narrative capture in terms of, you know, mindset, but it's a narrative ta- capture in terms of of people will not see what's obvious. Right. <laughs> so what do we do about that, Andy? <laughs>
0: Uh, it well, this I guess this gets at one of the other big learnings that came to me starting around 2006. So, I'd I'd been reporting on climate change starting in 1985, really, with nuclear winter, the chilling of the earth if we put too much smoke into the atmosphere after a nuclear war, 1988, global warming, you know, several thousand pieces, and since then, and it was only in 2006, it was the first time I recall interviewing a behavioral scientist about climate change and a social scientist she was a sociologist at at uc irvine helen ingram and she started laying out basic principles of understanding from social science that directly challenged my me as a journalist because it said basically information doesn't matter a lot of the time (laughs) That you know, there's all this work on what's called cultural cognition. That you're, we all wear glasses colored differently, so that we look at the same facts and come away with different reactions. Especially when issues are polarized, like uh, abortion, uh, gun rights, climate change now. And and again, to me, I, I've been winning prizes, writing really good stories about climate. You know, greenhouse gases are going into the atmosphere, and here's a really cool graphic showing you why that matters, and thinking that was going to change the landscape of what people do. It it, it was a real important moment for me. And from then on, I dug in so much more in that arena that uh, by 2010, when I left full-time journalism, partially because of this understanding, I took a position at Pace University where they asked me to come up with a title for my position. And it was senior, uh, senior fellow for environmental understanding, Mm. not Environmental writing, <laughs> and to me that says a lot too. I, I was realizing I had faltered on that component of the communication landscape, the reception, the reception of information, the rejection of information, and how that even then translates into action. You know, there are plenty of people who, uh, when you ask them in a polling question, are deeply worried about global warming, but what are they doing about it? <laughs> Not so much. So, so I've just decided to get more focused on efficacy than on uh, art, the art of writing and the like. Mm-hmm. I, I, I could write lots of more, lots more great stories about global warming and biodiversity loss, like my book on the Amazon. And if I, but I also am carefully interrogating myself about: is that the best use of my time uh, at this time? In, in, in some instances, it is. I still write books, and I'm not stopping writing uh, or communicating. But I'm trying to keep. That bigger picture in mind too.
1: Yeah, something else that you said um, that I find provocative, and I'm wondering how how where you go with it is the idea that it's not so much about you know the one way communication of writing or you know calls to action. The the it's about conversation. It's you know, and and that actually is a way to disrupt narrative capture. Because if you can be in a conversation with somebody who doesn't see it quite like you do, you suddenly, the the solidity of your narrative, just, it's just tweaked a little bit. And if you can stay in curiosity rather than debate. So do you think that, that we need more conversation about this and not more reports and, you know, yeah. and what would that look like?
0: Do you see it happening? It, it's out there. I, I think it's incredibly important. Um, I think that the means we're using to communicate right now through screens and stuff is a, definitely an impediment to impact in conversations. I, I, I don't think it's impossible to have a constructive conversation around something people disagree on online. I think it is possible. But I, uh, the models that are out there are exciting to me. They're they're as simple as a woman named Joanne McGarry, who I only know because of Facebook. She's in Humboldt County, California. She's a frequent viewer of my webcasts. And when I did one on this issue, divisiveness, and um, she posted in the comment string that she's part of some little group there where they go out onto a town green with an umbrella, Two folding chairs, and the whole idea is to engage in a conversation with, with somebody on something that, that you disagree on. And I love that. So that's like at the yeah. bespoke level of a town green. Um, and then at Columbia, I've met Peter Coleman, who, among other things, runs something called the Difficult Conversations Laboratory.
1: Mm-hmm. His whole
0: for 20 plus years, he's been studying conflict and complexity around the world. And his his mantra is you don't need agreement, you just need cooperation. So you can have a conversation amid complexity and conflict and you can agree on some things that to do, uh, you can come out with a template of actions despite having strong disagreement on stuff. Um, Congress used to do that. <laughs> Uh, you know that was what Joe Joe Biden campaigned on his capacity to do that back in the day. But you know, he would talk to a racist about something unrelated to racism. Uh, it, it creates all kinds of prickly feelings, and people I know, and including me, to think about some of the compromises that people make for the sake of uh, uh, cooperation. And so, the, so it's out there. It the, the impediments are particularly large when we're. We've been forced with the pandemic to be isolated from other people. And even before the pandemic, um, young people today live in a digital screenish world that sometimes I see even young people I know, even in my own family who have a certain uh, nervousness or about direct conversational engagement with people. we're We're losing some of that. And that requires, it requires work. And Peter Coleman would tell you that there's a, there's a science to it too. <laughs> and and I like Ted Keel, K-H-E-E-L, who was this famous New York City-based um, labor mediator. Mediators know this, of course. Mm-hmm. He mediated all the big labor disputes between the city and the unions in the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. And then he became a philanthropist later in life um, he just, I remember having talks with him. He got very focused on climate, so we talked a lot and he talked about um, the anatomy of a dispute. You can understand the anatomy of a dispute as a lawyer, as a mediator. Their first step it's like it's like with a you know divorce uh, <laughs> mediator or psychologist, and- have to do this all the time. So, what kind of dispute is this? Is this a dispute of interest? Is it a dispute of uh, uh, contract? Is it a dis- dispute of and the way he talked about it reminds me so much of what I've learned more recently from Peter Coleman about there are ways to hold d- difficult conversations, and there are ways to end up screaming at each other. So there's there's the science to some of this. Um, jur- journalists, uh, there's the Solutions Journalism Network, which and uh, they're trying to change the way reporters report. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I mean, every reporter I know, including me, is a victim, is a um, perpetrator of trying to simplify simplify stories you're listening after some event happened you're interviewing three or four people and you're you're listening for those crystalline quotes that you can then put into a story but when you're doing that you're actually distilling away the complexity he was an idiot because <laughs> you know oh good quote you, you know so if you're only engaged in an interview to get a good quote, are you actually doing a service to your readers? A woman named Amanda Ripley, a journalist, she has a new book out on conflict uh, resolution. She wrote a long manifesto on how to flip the script Mm -hmm. and report using questions more like therapists use. You say, that must've been really tough being in that situation, tell me more. Which is again, the antithesis of how journalists use typically behave. And this is obviously it's not just for journalists. So we face choices in how we have conversations. Um, uh, someone I remember this probably goes back to Ben Franklin or something. every everything seems to go back to Ben Franklin. Uh, um, you know, half the time when you're in conversation, you're just waiting to you're just waiting to make your statement. You're not actually listening. So active listening. Uh, these are practices that I'd love to, I would love to sort of propagate as much as I would love to propagate understanding of climate change.
1: Mm. This is so evocative, really. I mean, when you said it's, it's the questions that therapists asked, ask, you know, it's like we're We're traumatized. I mean, you know, from nine 11 onward, this country is in this like, Trauma, <laughs> like we are not the good guys. We are not in control. You know, it's just like yeah. this sustained. And you know, when you know in psychology in therapy, you know, when somebody's in a trauma, you have to ease them out of the trauma before they can even begin to work on the on anything that's underlying. And so, is there some way which? Some, some compassionate intervention in our traumatized psyches here in this, you know, sort of dominant nation, you know, and the world as well. So, I mean, and so, as you say, you know, activists like just screaming at each other louder are actually, if, if we're in a traumatized, a traumatized collective experience and people are acting out of trauma, that's a frame to look at this. Then you know, activists yelling at each other is just actually, oh man, it's making it so much worse.
0: Yeah, um, and even so, stepping back from the um, the discourse part, there's also a value in in looking at the problem, like climate change or biodiversity loss, and these these issues that have such scale issue scale challenges both in time and space um the sixth extinction you know these they're all best selling book concepts but and they're paired usually with an urgent call to action that doesn't match the scale of the response uh, of yes, the problem exactly. so and a lot of people understand this then so they end up instinctively saying well there's nothing i can do and that can lead to paraly- further paralysis. Now, I, I, another bit of a um, evolutionary moment for me came almost 10 years ago when I uh, I was lucky to go through most of my life. You know, I've had accidents and things have happened, but my first real m- mortality moment came in uh, 2011 when I had a stroke and uh, it was very lucky. Uh, it just people can google for stroke lucky and revkin and find <laughs> lots of things i wrote about it but it, you know it really was my brain telling me hey you know you're mortal uh, i'm your brain you kind of broke me um so just get used to that idea as opposed to waking up in the morning not thinking about my brain y- using my brain yeah. to think but not really thinking about the brain and um i i kind of it got me into a Mindset, sort of like um, the Serenity Prayer, <laughs> mm-hmm. it's sort of n- like an agnostic version of it, where it's like, um, and I'm totally blanking on some of this now, but it's kind of know the know the difference between what you can change, what you can't change. Right, and exactly. Comfortable with that, and um, it's the comfort factor that some people find hard time getting comfortable with my, my activist friends, you know, even the ones who are deeply knowledgeable about the scale of global warming are not willing to acknowledge a big chunk of it is just going to play out that we can't rapidly decarbonize a global energy, a global energy system that took a hundred years to build dependency on carbon. It's not just fossil fuel companies telling Exxon to shut up and do reparations is not going to solve this. Uh, So, so, but that it's sort of hard to build a campaign around a serenity prayer, which is well, to do what you can do, understand the difference between what's an unavoidable, whether it's your own mortality or global change, and you know make the best of the of the situation. Uh, and but to me, it's really the only path to sanity amid um, both being mortal and being on a planet that's experiencing a human surge. That's remarkable, you know, in so many ways. It's not like you can stop the tide. and and again, mm-hmm. as a journalist, like that gets back to the the old headline news norm. Most of my journalistic life was about getting to the front page or the front cover of magazine. And usually when I accomplished that, partially it was through the story being oversimplified and not taking into account some of those big realities that don't fit into a front page story. Um, and there are two, I mean, there are two different approaches to that moment of realization in people, one is you get comfortable with not being fully truthful. And one is you just decide to be complicated. <laughs> and, and, and I, I only learned this phrase this past year from a filmmaker I'm working with on something. He talked there in the, uh, um, social political science literature, there's something called pro-social lying.
1: Huh.
0: People can look that up, pro-social lying, where you're essentially, for the sake of the greater good, you're willing to sort of brush around the edges of reality.
1: The Little white lies.
0: Yeah, um, and some of them are big, you know, like oh, a That's Oh, right,
1: that solve the little climate, white lies.
0: Solve the climate crisis is, 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 is pro-social lying.
1: Totally. Yeah. I, I, it just a little editorializing from Vicki is that I, I don't think that, that we're going to get through this without, without maturation, without exactly what you're talking about, of like facing the things that I cannot change and accepting those and changing, having the courage to change what I can and accept what I can't and know the difference. Right. You know, that is really, Senator, that's like a little instruction manual for growing up. Growing out of sort of an, an addictive, immature mentality, um, and then when you get through that, when you go like, okay, you know, it didn't seem like there would be any life after alcohol because that was everything, but now I'm sober, and actually, there's a lot of life, and so it's it's sort of it's sort of that's where your risk assessment your is an interesting approach because once you're an adult in the matter and not insisting that you live on an alluvial plain or you know that <laughs> you know right. you can pull the chestnuts out of the fire and you can be the hero or whatever once you're there then you go like okay fine what do we what are the systems that we're managing and how do we produce the best outcome given what we have not what we wish we had or what we the story we've told ourselves about the idealized garden of eden that we once had you know it's like how do we participate in the life process that is all about living and dying and dead ends and opportunities and resilience. It's not an imposed story that an activist can craft that will inspire everybody to take a new direction. It's, it's the fundamental story of you know, being a creature.
0: This also gets to um, how we think about ourselves as a species. I think a lot of my environmental friends, and probably at some point I felt this way too, that we were really, we we're, you know, a plague on the earth, that we're, that uh, there's actually a voluntary extinction movement. It's I very know. small.
1: I know. We had the founder of it over to dinner one time. <laughs>
0: oh, interesting. <laughs> and uh, I I tend to have, again, some of this might just come through experience being, you know, as they say in Yiddish, an Altakak or an older, older guy. <laughs> the I've gotten um, more comfortable with the human the nature of human nature. I, I, you know there are these extreme extremities, these sort of trumpian extremities that I think I make my mind boggle. They boggle my mind. But if you look at us in our grand in the grand scheme of things, we still have made the world. an interesting place and we've done terrible things and through history, uh, both to other people and peoples and to other species, some of it unwittingly, some of it wittingly, and yet I, I still feel that overall we're kind of perfect in a way for this sort of weird landscape we live in right now that's partially our own creation, partially a planet we still don't fully understand you know, I just did a session recently on the volcano in, in um, the, the La Soufriere volcano in St. Vincent and Grenadines. And it's been sitting there waiting to blow for a long time. Lots of lessons there about, as you were saying about New Orleans, learning to live in temporary landscapes. Um, and so what we want is adaptability. What we want is variety. A paper that was very resonated with me hugely when I first read it in 2011. It was written in 2003. It was on what's called response diversity in ecosystems as a source of resilience by a guy named Thomas Elmqvist at the, in Stockholm. And what they looked through all the literature and they found that basically the resilience of an ecosystem to an environmental stress is more a function of the um, diversity of responses that species that have a function in that ecosystem have to the stress than it is of this, the diversity of species. So you, mm-hmm. you think of like a rainforest, well, you wanna have lots of species and that gives you resilience. It's not That's actually not demonstrated in science. It's the capacity for the species that do some function in the ecosystem to respond to a stress in many different ways so that you're not stuck. You know, if every species just kind of hungered into its shell, <laughs> then that would be a problem if, if the thing you had to do was run. Um, and so I saw this paper. I read about this in a piece where um, if anyone just Googles for response diversity in Revkin, they'd find it. Um, in a social context, it then became clear to me that you know you you want to have edge pushers and you want to have go go it loners and you want to have communitarians and you want to have someone tending the fire. And if we have if we all were edge pushers, you, H H sapiens would not be here today. <laughs> if we all were sit by the fire types, we would not be here today. So no. somehow. Part of that um, serenity prayer relates to embracing the perfect imperfectness of our nature as humans.
1: I could talk to you forever, but I think that's a wrap. (laughs) I think (laughs) that's your pearl of wisdom. Um, It's not a pearl. It's like a string of pearls, or maybe it's not even a string of pearls. It's like a bunch of little seashells that somebody put little holes in because it's it's very diverse. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so that this hopeful message can get out to more people. Check out Post Carbon Institute's Resilience website for show notes and for more guest information. Join us on Patreon and become a financial supporter of the show and for exclusive content and special online events. Thanks also to Asher Miller, Amy Burringrude, and Clara Winter of Post Carbon Institute, plus production assistant Michelle Wig from frugalityandfreedom.com.